This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Mustful, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Kent Graham, author of the book Gettysburg, The Living and the Dead. Kent, thank you for joining me today. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. Kent Graham is an adjunct professor of English and Civil War era studies at Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. A Wisconsin native, Graham has also taught at colleges in Germany, Illinois, and Indiana. He holds a PhD in creative writing and American literature from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and studied theology at Princeton Theological Seminary at the University of Tübingen, Germany. He has written books, plays, novels, and poetry about Abraham Lincoln, Gettysburg, and the American Civil War. His book, November, Lincoln's Elegy at Gettysburg, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and the Graduate Writing Program at LSU awards an annual Kent Graham Prize in Creative Nonfiction. Finally, he is a lifelong student of the Civil War. And Kent, that's where I'd like to begin. Um, Could you tell us more about your interest in Abraham Lincoln and Gettysburg and the American Civil War? I can try. It's one of those questions that is very natural but almost impossible to answer. Why does a person become interested in something at an early age, which I did? I suppose I was about 10 or 11, and I got interested in the Civil War. I had a couple of uh, friends at the time, Bruce and Mike, who uh, were interested in the war, and I guess we fostered each other's interests. I had a wonderful teacher, uh, Yvonne, who uh, encouraged us. And I think uh, these things are important to have someone else share your interest and at an early age to have a teacher who encourages rather than uh, shuts you down. Um, Sure. But why one becomes interested in one thing specifically rather than another is a mystery. I think that's one of, one of the mysteries of life. I mean, I was exposed to uh, railroads and trains, but I didn't become a train guy. You know, I I liked horses at that age, but uh, you know, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not a horse person. That one interest uh, caught hold, and, and I can't really tell you why, but th- an interest like that um, tends to develop and change, and one hopes mature as time goes on. You know, at first you're interested in uniforms and soldiers, and some kids are interested in the guns and cannons and stuff like that. At a certain point, you start to integrate that with the questions that life poses to you as, as you get uh, 
in your teen years and in your 20s, you know, you start to, to think uh, that life is unjust, that life is tragic, life can be cruel, it can be glorious. And how does that, how do you get a handle on that? And one of the ways you do that is through uh, a strong interest that you've had since childhood. In this case, it's a war. I mean, I'm not really a war guy, but I, I'm interested in how people act under extreme pressure. This is why uh, Shakespeare and the Greek writers and so on wrote about people in power, people in love, people at war. It's because it's a way of trying to get a handle on that great question that uh, Elie Wiesel says has no answers. The question, why? This is a rather long answer. <laughs> you asked me why, you know, how I got interested sure. in did, did you grow up in Pennsylvania or around Gettysburg? No, I had uh, I didn't come to Gettysburg until I was I think twenty or twenty one. Okay, and what was that like the first time you visited the the battlefield? Well, it was strange. It was almost like a, a sense of recognition, and as some people say who visit Gettysburg, there's something about the place that gets you, and indeed that's that's what happened. Uh, and so I started coming back uh, yearly and then more than yearly and uh, started spending a lot of time here and finally was able to move here. I mean, not exactly to Gettysburg, but pretty close. Mm-hmm. So I suppose they, they begin to recognize you as a regular, huh? <laughs> I think so. I, I've been uh, recognized on the battlefield a few times. It's always a little disconcerting. Uh-huh. Well, let's get into the book then, uh, Gettysburg, The Living and the Dead. It's such a unique book. I'm not sure how to classify it. Uh, I wonder if you could try to describe in your own words how you would classify the narrative and the, the genre here. I agree with you that, that it can't be classified, or at least I don't know how to do so. And I'm not sure that there are books that are very similar in terms of the genre. It's a mixture of genres. And maybe that's the thing that most characterizes it. Uh, half of it is, is photographs, these beautiful photographs by Chris Heisey. And we match them with uh, texts that I wrote. And the texts themselves are uh, a number of genres, all of them in a sense. You know, if, if you count the four major genres as fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and drama, there's some of, of all of them in these texts. So the, the literary text mix the genres, and then, then there's the, the visual along with the, uh, the written genre. So it's a real, it's either a real mess or it's, uh, it's, it's an integration that matches more our real experience. Mm-hmm. When, when we go to uh, a battlefield like Gettysburg, we aren't just affected by one uh, stream of perceptions. You know, our memories of, of uh, what we've read about the battle or words that come back, like the Gettysburg Address, these are matched with visuals. We're there on the battlefield and we see these things. And we can touch these monuments and we can walk the fields. And so it seems to me that the more you can uh, you can get in in terms of the genres, the more like real experience it is. 
And that's kind of what the point is, in a way, of, of the book, is to try to get to that real experience. Well, I think it definitely evokes a lot of emotion, and uh, it's very thought-provoking. And, and I can see a lot of uh, creative writing skills put to use uh, to really manipulate uh, an emotional response in the book. Well, thank you. That's good. And but I, I must say that I'm. I didn't really try to manipulate anyone. I, I I guess what you do is is simply try to be true to the experience or the perception mm-hmm. that you happen to have. And and for me, the, there was a, a great deal of emotional involvement, and in, in that that comes through. I think naturally. Mm-hmm. In the prologue, uh, you have a staged photograph of a fallen soldier, and I'm interested in how you refer to it as art. Uh, how do you use art to really convey the depths of the human experience at Gettysburg? It seems to me that art is the closest we can come to conveying experience because um the the straightforward uh, recording, uh, you know, collecting and recording of facts, insofar as we can determine what they are, which is crucial. We we have to do that's the, sort of the foundation for all this. But they do not really contain the experience and the emotion. That is for for art to do, because. So much of the experience actually is uh, is emotional and possibly spiritual, and so you need something that um, selects and arranges uh, impressions and, and bits and pieces of of history or, or the present and uh, presents them in such a way that uh, these emotions are reproduced or perhaps evoked. And you asked specifically about that first photograph uh, in, in the prologue. That's the only photograph in the book that's a historical photograph that Chris Heisey didn't shoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a well-known picture of, of a sniper at uh, Devil's Den. And when you visit the battlefield and you go to the Confederate side, you know, Devil's Den, and you see uh, those rocks that were piled up there, and you see uh, the photograph that the Park Service has put there. There's uh, controversy over that photograph. It, it hasn't really been, at least to my knowledge, clearly established um, exactly what the circumstances of that photograph were. I think the general consensus now is that um, the photographers who were there several days after the battle first photographed the body several or more than several yards from from those rocks and then dragged the body behind that wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've read a, a, a very <clears throat> persuasive article saying, no, it was just the other way around, that he was first photographed there because uh, the uh, the gunners, that is the, the uh, cannoneers on Little Round Top who were being shot to death by these uh, long-distance sharpshooters um, had to have some way of of trying to 
to get at them, even though they were behind these rocks, and in this case, behind uh, rocks that were piled up. So they cut their fuses. You talk about art. Artillery was an art during the Civil War. It wasn't only a science. You had to allow for the wind. You had to allow for the uh, for the recoil of your guns. That is, you couldn't, you know, recite in the same place. And most of all, you had to cut your fuses exactly right. And so these really experienced Union gunners tried to cut their fuse so that the shell would explode right over the heads, <coughs> excuse me, the heads of these uh, snipers. And you you died not from shrapnel but from the concussion. The shell exploding right over you uh, is, is a terrific uh, impact. And it is possible either to imagine or to actually see blood coming out of this poor soldier's ears uh, and nose and mouth. And so if, if that's accurate, then possibly he was killed by concussion. And this was where he was. Again, I'm probably telling you a lot more than, than you wanted to know. But the, no, that's quite interesting. The point is that uh, one way or another, the, the original photographers who were recording the actual scenes there did employ some kind of art because one way or another, they moved the body at least a little bit, even if uh, this, this young man, was uh, his body was actually there. They still moved it a little. They, they probably uh, faced him a little more toward the camera. They certainly put the uh, rifle. It's not a, it's not a sharpshooter's musket, but a regular rifle. Leaned it against the the rocks. And the idea there was to convey something. And you see this again and again with these really artful photographers right after these battles. A classic example is the one at the uh, Dunker Church at Antietam, where the person put a, a, a pair of shoes in front of the scene of the dead horse and they. The bodies lying there in front of Dunker Church, and, and the idea of those shoes, just like we find at the Holocaust Museum today in, in Washington D.C., that really conveys a sense of personhood. You know, there's an actual person here, and not just a, a gory feature. So I sort of uh, attributed to to the uh, photographer fictionally. Now, the possibility that what he's trying to convey is the uh, the sadness, the tragedy. In this case, not not the causes, uh, but just the tragedy of of death, and that tragedy is literally brought home because you see this person lying there, who was, uh, in the words of a uh, popular Civil War song, somebody's darling. And that's what the photograph is of, I think. Well, it's, it's certainly quite interesting how much you can take take away from one photograph like that, uh, as far as speculation as how how he died and where he died, and then certainly then the the tragedy behind it and and the personhood, as you mentioned. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit more about personhood because there are numerous voices throughout this this book. Uh, of different people and perspectives involved in Gettysburg. And, and you really did a great job of uh, capturing those voices. So talk a little bit about who is in this book. Who are you representing? All right. <clears throat> I'll try. There, there are two 
kinds of voices. Uh, one is uh, uh, voices of the, uh, the dead, those who were uh, present at the battle, active in the battle, or witnesses at the time of the battle or shortly thereafter, and uh, then the living, those who might be alive today or those who visited the battlefield and who are in some way or another affected. That phrase, the living and the dead, is, is uh, indirectly from the Gettysburg Address. So maybe the, the, the place to start in terms of personality is uh, with Abraham Lincoln. And with Lincoln, you have, uh, I think, a mystery again. I, I have used the word uh, just a few minutes ago, and this probably won't be the last time in this hour that I will, but there's so much there that is is mysterious, that is, is beyond comprehension, and that's the almost endless attraction of something like this, something as terrible as a battle. And when you go there, you see this beautiful battlefield. The combination of those two is the first mystery that you encounter at Gettysburg. How can something so awful Hell on earth looks so heavenly, so beautiful, nearly at all times of the year, and even more so before they did all the uh, tree cutting on the battlefield. But it's still beautiful. So how, how can this be? That is a presentation of, of life itself in a larger sense. We live in a beautiful world that we are rapidly trashing and possibly even destroying ourselves along with it. Uh, how does that beauty match the uh, human activity that we see, the way we are toward each other, which is sometimes noble and, uh, uh, and, and gracious, and other times just so savage and selfish? Well, this is present in, uh, in, in small form, relatively small form, in, on a battlefield like Gettysburg. What reminds you of it? is uh, the display of, of statuary on the field. It's the largest display of, of uh, statuary out in the open in the world. I don't remember how many figures there are, but, but uh, there are a great many. And that reminds you um, of what goes on. So on that battlefield, you have this overlay of human history, and that gets toward that, uh, that mystery, Lincoln being at the center of it. I think. I mean, who was this person? Did anybody really know him? Uh, even those who were close to him admitted there was a certain kind of mystery. And I think that's typical of us, too. We are in some ways mysteries to ourselves. At any rate, so you have Lincoln. And I took um, a witness. Uh, there's an account written by a boy who was 14 at the time. He was a, a boy from Chambersburg, which is about 30 miles west of uh, Gettysburg. Uh, the Army of Northern Virginia came through Chambersburg on its way to Gettysburg. He witnessed that, and then he went, and he saw Abraham Lincoln, and, and I believe he did actually get to be right up front, right under the president as he spoke. Uh, did he actually figure out who Lincoln was? No, but I, I just took that little historical fact and what what I remembered from uh, his book and tried to be there with him, tried to hear him as he remembered being there in front of Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And then uh, four, four of the uh, women who knew Abraham Lincoln trying to sort of get at some aspect of him, his sister, 
Sarah and uh, Anne Rutledge. Um, uh, and the two mothers he had, his birth mother and uh, uh, Nancy Hank, Nancy Hanks Lincoln and uh, uh, his mother after that, Sarah Bush Lincoln, whom he credited with uh, everything he was. Uh, he said he owed to her. I think he owed to, to all of them. And they all are ways of trying to, to look at aspects of him. But anyway, there, there we have a, a long start with the person, in a sense, at the at the center uh, of the battle and and its meaning. Now you asked uh, about other figures. Well, things that come to mind: uh, Colonel Cross, an actual historical figure, uh, a, a real fire-eating great uh, colonel who uh, entered the. Uh, the battle with his with his men, knowing that he was going to be killed. This happens uh, in the Civil War in uh, in memorable ways. Soldiers saying, "I I know I'm not going to get through this. I'm not going to come out of this. Would you please send this to my family afterwards?" I mean, we don't know how many guys were wrong about that, but we know that a lot of them were right. And Colonel Cross, uh, he was he was bald, and he always wore a red kerchief around his head going into battle. This time he asked his orderly for a black one, and he said that he wasn't going to come back. He wasn't going to come out of it. At any rate, that's a, a figure that uh, goes into battle and and uh, is, is really exhorting his his men. He's he's full of the fire of, of of battle. And one thing that I think must be understood, uh, especially among those of us who study uh, a war that took place 160 years ago that it wasn't uh, as neat as it looked in the books, as neat and clean and almost pleasant. Uh, Homer got it right at the beginning of the Iliad. It's about rage. Uh, it's about this fierce rage and anger. And so Colonel Cross goes into, into battle just with the, the terrific rage of battle. And all I have to do with him and with uh, all of the figures that I wrote, wrote uh, prose about. It's a little different from the, the several poems that are in there, but prose, all I have to do is listen. And, uh, you know, that's that's what I heard Colonel Cross saying. There were some others at, at the time, uh, not only soldiers. I've got quite a few soldiers in here, both Southerners and Northerners. Uh, and I tried to, to, to convey some of their motivation, uh, some of the causes, because they died for these causes. It was important what they believed about secession or slavery one way or the other. But then there's some witnesses. There's uh, there's a young mother with children. This, this is based on uh, something that was actually reported in the first hours of the battle west of town. Uh, someone saw a, uh, a young mother with a couple or three children trying to, trying to get away. And uh, there were... Uh, well, kind of an untold story is that there are a lot of black folk uh, on the Confederate side, not fighting on the Confederate side, but but doing a lot of the uh, a lot of the work. And so I have uh, one or two of these people uh, speaking. Mm-hmm. So I tried in that way to to convey or to get at or to well, basically just to listen to some of them what they said. Uh, several several of the uh, people who were killed 
uh, were women uh, dressed up as men in uniform and probably were not recognized as women at, at the time. This was uh, an earlier day and age, and uh, you could get in, in, in battle and go through uh, campaigns w- without you know, having to reveal your gender. This happened. Uh, several of the bodies that were found by burial parties after the battle on the Confederate side were, uh, were women. So <clears throat> uh, one of these uh, people who speaks is, is a woman who's there basically to take care of her brother mm-hmm. who enlisted, you know, uh, anyway. So there, there's a, a kind of a, a variety of people uh, who were there at, at the time with various motivations. And uh, one or two of them dying in hospitals afterwards. There's one mother who comes just a little too late to Camp Letterman where her son has just died. Uh, so, so these are the uh, the contemporary figures, you know, at, at that time. Mm-hmm. And then the other half of the uh, the text uh, are uh, present day people. I should probably stop and let you ask more if you'd like, or do you want me to to just uh, continue to? to uh, well, no, that's, uh, I think uh, go ahead and talk a little bit about those present day people. I think they play you know just as an important role as those uh, historical figures. I, I'm glad you think so. I, I think so too, and and I, I think this is Lincoln's point in the Gettysburg Address. I mean, the the, the point of that address is addresses the future. It's us. He, Lincoln entrusts the meaning of the war, the results of the war, to the future. If you look at that uh, speech, it contains three paragraphs: one very short one, another one a little bit longer, and then the long one, which is dedicated to the future. And that means. You and me, that's that's us. So I, I think we are part of the battle in the sense of its uh, significance and its meaning. So some of these people uh, who are contemporary uh, are based on facts and are people that I've really met on the battlefield, or at least there's some element of, of what they say that is based on someone that I've known or who has, has said something like that or who has been there. Uh, some of them are very close to to facts, like the person from um, rural Virginia. He wasn't actually from Virginia, but a different southern state would come up because his son had uh, recently been killed in Iraq and he had never been out of his home state. And he was coming up to Gettysburg to try to understand something about his son, a soldier. And I spent a few hours with that person going around the battlefield. Um, and then there's a, there's a musician. I took something he said, description of somebody I know, um, and, and a few others like that. And then there are a few who, uh, who come onto the battlefield sort of from different places in the uh, either in my memory or, or in the past. And they're, of course, heavily fictionalized. But what I'm trying to do is get at something real, something true. As Emily Dickinson said, uh, tell the truth, but tell it slant. It's like a frontal assault, you know, during the Civil War. It's very seldom successful in really trying to 
to do what you want to do. But sometimes if you come at something obliquely, uh, you can get at something. You know, we see these strange things in life sometimes out of the very corners of our eyes, and we're not sure we actually see them. So uh, fiction or fictionalizing or what you might call creative nonfiction, which a lot of the pieces are, are a way of trying to get at that. And I, I try to remove myself from the whole book and just listen to other people. But it's inevitable that some of these other people have things to say, uh, whether I agree with them or not, about contemporary issues. There's a man who comes over from Germany in the 1920s, um, and he, uh, he's employed by one of the uh, Apple producers in Adams County. And uh, it's inevitable to think of immigrants today. I mean, you don't have to say it. All I did was, was uh, uh, have this, this uh, young German's letter back home. And at the time, Germans were not thought very well of. This was between the wars. <clears throat> you didn't uh, like the Germans after World War I if you were of German heritage. Uh, you sometimes tried to cover that up or you didn't speak German. And then something even worse comes along in World War II. So this is not a happy day for Germans. And so a lot of people looked at these German immigrants in a very negative way, which is what we're experiencing now. But sometimes um, historical things have a lot to say about the present. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Maybe I should look through the table of contents in order to come up with a few other things. Um, there's a... Uh, well, you yeah. you uh, you quoted one of the narrators of the stories uh, said, "History is personal, folks. History is today." Maybe you can elaborate a little on that. That's the uh, <clears throat> that's the fellow who's uh, who's got a, a tour group and he's looking at the uh, Excelsior Brigade's uh, monument and uh, looking up toward the uh, the peach orchard. And he's talking about General Dan Sickles. And uh, General Sickles was a politician, a very unsavory uh, character, uh, according to some, and uh, unsavory reputation, uh, who really was not qualified for his position. He was, uh, he was popular with his men, very popular. He, he seemed to have a lot of pluck. He'd not been to West Point. He, he just sometimes did not know what he was doing out there, but he was very sure of himself at the same time, Dan Sickles was. So he got promoted uh, because of personal, even Abraham Lincoln liked him personally. He got these promotions and he wound up commanding an entire army corps at Gettysburg. And he was, if, if he was even qualified to command a regiment, I mean, that, that would be... Uh, uh, controversial. At any rate, he was in command of the entire Army Corps that was assigned 
uh, a, a portion of a line along the main line, main cemetery ridge line. He had had a bad experience six weeks previous at the Battle of Chancellorsville with some Confederate artillery on higher ground, and he thought he was on low ground, so he moved forward to the Peach Orchard, which was somewhat higher ground, and thereby abandoning the highest ground in that portion of the battlefield, the round tops, the little round top and round top itself, and extending his line to twice the length that it could really defend. He almost lost the battle. <clears throat> he was an enormous liar. And uh, he said afterwards that, that he saved the battle. I mean, maybe he believed it. He was certainly a, a, a narcissist and an egoist. He claimed that he saved the battle by, by moving his corps out and uh, using up some of uh, Longstreet's attack on the second day of the battle, which I think uh, virtually every responsible historian that I've read uh, completely disbelieves and discredits. And it's an insult to the Army of the Potomac. Uh, because uh, <clears throat> to assume that they couldn't have defended their cemetery ridge line uh, as well the second day as they did the third day, I think is, is an insult. At any rate, so he moves his men out there, and, and General Meade, who commands the Army of the Potomac, has to uh, advance uh, parts of two other Army Corps piecemeal to try to shore up that line. That's a good way to get a lot of men killed, is to feed them in piecemeal. But Meade had no choice because of what Sickles had done. So this guy who's giving the tour was telling all that or some of that to the, to the people who are listening to him, looking at this uh, uh, monument to the Excelsior Brigade, Sickles' original brigade. Uh, and uh, this guy says, you know, I, I had a relative who was in, uh, in Sickles' Third Corps, and he was killed in that peach orchard. And there are a lot of uh, second and third cousins that I don't have. There's a lot of family that I don't have because of that young man being killed through the, the errors, egoism, uh, uh, incapacity, incompetence, uh, uh, insubordination uh -huh. of a general. And so that becomes personal. So he, he says that's personal. No, you, you are free to take whatever implications he would like to from that last statement of his history is now. Well, uh, Henry Ricardo said uh, it is the province of the historian to find out not what was, but what is. Mm -hmm. Certainly the, the consequences reverberate uh, all the way to today. Yes. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the spiritual and religious aspects of this book. I'll, I'll read one uh, quote here uh, from the story, Blood and Water. Uh, you write, the Savior knew what they would do to him. He understood the agony and he was afraid, but for some purpose I will never understand, he went ahead. And that's something you seem to grapple with throughout the, the, the stories is reconciling our, our own faith. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I'll try to. These people who fought on both sides were people of uh, strong and deeply held, most of them, religious faith. Uh, it, was a, it was a different era in those days. And that religious faith, uh, you know, varied a lot. There, there were uh, uh, Catholics and Jews and Protestants of all stripes 
the the giants of uh, American Protestantism Protestantism at the time were the Baptists and the Methodists. These are people who had grown up with revivals, and so they had uh, this background in their heads. And and people uh, like Abraham Lincoln might have had one or two books in their <clears throat> excuse me in their houses growing up, and and uh, one of those two or that one would be uh, the King James translation of the Bible. And so they knew their, their Bibles very well. Lincoln knew it extremely well. It, it uh, permeates his, his speeches. And he knew he was talking to people who resonated with that because they knew those passages too. And they recognized those, those uh, references. When he says in, in the Gettysburg Address, uh, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth. He knows that that phrase brought forth is uh, in the King James translation of the uh, the nativity narrative. Brought forth means is, is a way of saying to give birth to. And there are several other references there. He knew his people would understand that because it was a common uh, uh, comprehension, or com- not a comprehension, but a, a, a just a, a common. It was it was in the air that they breathed. In the Civil War. Uh, shattered a lot of that or deepened a lot of that, uh, changed people's uh, faiths. And so to to ascribe to these uh, mid-19th century Americans uh, a religious way of speaking and thinking about things, uh, I think is, is accurate, and I don't think we understand them without it. Uh, it might be alien to many of us, but... Uh, that was the, the atmosphere in which they moved. And so, yes, they're, they're trying to make sense of their own experience. And, and here they are out in this battlefield, which is uh, smoke, dust, noise, and worst of all, an apparent randomness of who was getting killed. Uh, the person next to you gets hit that, that awful thunk of a, a mini ball, you know, hitting the person next to you. You wonder, are you going to be next? Uh, uh, w- what makes the difference? Is somebody calling the shots or is it just complete randomness and nobody's in charge? Mm-hmm. So the, the battle uh, presents that kind of chaos to people with religious upbringing. And, and maybe a, a, a way to uh, to see that in, in uh, modern terms, more modern terms, is to look at uh, the writing of Elie Wiesel, who was a, uh, a a very devout and knowledgeable, studied uh, young Jewish boy when he went into the uh, concentration camps, and he came out with what he calls a a wounded faith. He had to try to come to grips with this. How do you do that? And I, I think people in the Civil War were, were trying to do that. Uh, there's a great book on, on World War I by Paul Fussell uh, called The Great War in Modern Memory, where he sees that war as being a watershed and how people conceived of progress, conceived of civilization, and, and conceived of their own beliefs. I think we went through that 50 years previous to that during the Civil War. And, and a lot of people came out uh, really uh, damaged. When you think about the Civil War, 
it was just a tremendous shock that we cannot really conceive of. If you look at the arithmetic, the numbers, uh, consider 9-11. What effect that had on this country? What effect it continues to have that one day? Well, if you take this, the Civil War's casualties and you transpose the numbers into today's population, it's 9-11 every day for four years in terms of the numbers. And in fact, it's a bit worse than the numbers of 9-11. Imagine the crushing impact that has on people. That's only the dead. Think of all, during the Civil War, the, the uh, medical uh, capabilities were not as great as we have now. So many, many more people uh, remained uh, disabled for life, having lost an arm or a leg, not just through the uh, lack of knowledge of the surgeons or through their haste, but because of the, uh, the weaponry, the soft uh, lead mini ball just shattered bone. There wasn't much to reconstruct. And so there, there was a lot of uh, ampu. Just think of this, a, a, a million people in that country with its population hobbling around or disabled. And uh, almost every, every uh, family had somebody either in that family or somebody close in their extended family who was killed or disabled or made mentally uh, incapable by their experience in that war. So you have to come to grip with something like that. And all you have are the tools that you were given uh, when you were younger, namely the Christian faith or the Jewish faith. Uh-huh. How do you reconcile those two? So that's why there's there's a lot of uh, talk of religion in this book, because I think it's, it's actually a faithful or an accurate way to try to get at their experience. Uh-huh. And it happens to be relevant to us today, I think. Well, I think so too, and, and you made a good point about making sense of their experience, and it, it goes all the way to to today. And I get a sense of of mourning throughout this book. I get a sense of of healing too. Do you think we'll ever be healed from that division, from that grief and tragedy of the American Civil War? This opens up quite a bit of talk, and I'm afraid I'm I'm on the verge of yet another long answer. Okay. I think there are two ways to look at this. One is that the United States has been remarkable in in getting over the Civil War the way other countries have not. There are countries that that divided and fought uh, within themselves, and hundreds of years later, they're still at each other's throats. Uh, and we don't seem to to have that in this country. But it came at an enormous price. And the price was paid by black folk, you know, that uh, the price was that we re-narrated the Civil War, the most influential movie perhaps of all time, at least my son-in-law who's a film uh, history guy says, was uh, Birth of a Nation. It was Woodrow Wilson's favorite movie. It's incredible, in, it, it's incredibly awful in terms of its blatant uh, racism. That's how people thought in those days. And, and the idea was that, that uh, the South had, had a, a real story to tell, and it comes through even better in Gone with the Wind 20 years later. A, a magnificent story and a magnificent movie, but full of uh, visible and sometimes not so visible or at least more subtle uh, 
kinds of racism as well as sexism. And so the country has had to grapple with that. And I think uh, contemporary events show that we have not gotten over that. We haven't healed that uh, essential element of the Civil War. And I think we, we haven't uh, really fixed the, uh, the relationship of federal and, and local or federal and state very well either. But the main thing, I think, is that, is that uh, re-narrating the Civil War, that the, the most recent generation, as I read them, of uh, historians have been trying to fix. I mean, rehabilitating U.S. Grant, for example, um, because the narrative was that the Confederate generals were, were more skilled, uh, better human beings, and so on. And a person like Grant was a was a butcher, a plotter, and I, I think the the new books on Grant show him to be uh, a, a thoughtful, imaginative, uh, out, you know, excellent general and person as well. So making the narrative, you know, it's the uh, the end of Reconstruction was was a catastrophe for a certain portion of, of our population. Uh, it was a deal that was cut, uh, what Mark Twain called the, the uh, Hayes-Tilden swindle, uh, so, so that the uh, Republicans could stay in office uh, for another four years. And part of the deal was to, was to end the uh, occupation of the South. And uh, you know, all these things were, were paid. There was a cost you know, that was paid by somebody. And I think we're, we're, we're left with that legacy now. So I, I think that on the one hand, we have overcome the division of the Civil War quite a bit. But on the other hand, uh, we are more divided again now. I mean, I'm old enough to, to remember the Vietnam War and its divisions then. It seems to me that our divisions now are deeper and possibly more dangerous. And they're not geographical, which makes them worse. And I think it's partly because we haven't really uh, processed and worked through and healed uh, the Civil War and the issues at the heart, the core of the Civil War. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, and, and, you know, you talk about someone like Lincoln, and I think, you know, dozens of books are published about him every year uh, from varying perspectives. And, uh, you know, I think it's something that we're still trying to understand what happened and who he was in the center of all that. And of course, the question you brought up earlier is, is why? Yeah. Now let's talk mm-hmm. about the photography. Um, it's stunning. It's, it's absolutely beautiful photography. Uh, tell us about the photographer, Chris Heisey and how you came to work with him. Chris Heisey is, is a real artist. He's the real thing. He has been, to Gettysburg by his count over the last, uh, I forget what it, whether he said 30 or 40 years, about 10,000 times. Oh my and he lives fairly close. He lives only, you know, about a half an hour away, but he goes there, as you can see from these photographs, which I think you rightly called, I'm glad you called stunning. These photographs were taken at any time of the day or night. I mean, he'll go out on a winter night and, and take a, a long exposure uh, of the night sky. There's one in here, you know, taking a devil's den uh, and the star trails. And he'll, he'll, he'll sit out there, stand out there and freeze 
for several hours, you know, to get to the right thing. He'll go there during the worst possible weather for driving. You know, he, he scares me sometimes. When mm-hmm. He drives down there, you know, there's just ice all over in order to shoot photographs, in order to get things at all seasons, uh, at all times of day, um, <clears throat> to, to try to get that combination of nature uh, and, and history, which he does so brilliantly and he does so beautifully. It's like uh, like a great poem. It has to be not only thought provoking, or or it has to not only uh, uh, cue you to to the whole tradition of literature, but it, it has to be beautiful. You have to like it. There has to be something about it that makes you want to read it. And that's that's I think the case with all good art. And, and his photographs not only are thought provoking, but they're beautiful. So he uh, he publishes. Uh, and has for the last, oh, I don't know, 15 years or so, an annual calendar. He goes all over the country uh, taking photographs at uh, uh, Civil War battlefields and writing little pieces about them uh, in that month. <clears throat> so he, he is a really dedicated professional. He is a professional photographer. Uh, his, his day job, the, the job where he, you, know, you have to earn your living, but uh, he uses those skills and develops them on these battlefields. And uh, I, I should say that, that his, his passion, as you can see from many of the photographs, like uh, spider webs or insects, um, his passion is, is nature photography. And we're, we're working on something on, on, along those lines now. But, uh, yeah, he, he could not create these stunning photographs unless he were emotionally affected and, uh, you know, a real participant in the, that battlefield and the spirit of the battlefield himself. I feel fortunate to work for him. You said how, work with him. I, I, uh, I haven't answered your question, how we got in, in contact. Uh, about 15 years ago, I was uh, in charge of an annual uh, Civil War interdisciplinary uh, weekend seminar uh, at the uh, – uh, seminary held at the seminary, the Seminary Ridge uh, Symposium. And he was at one of the early ones. And he came up to me afterwards and we started talking and we realized that uh, he had all these photographs of the battlefield and I had written uh, some po- you know, poems about the battlefield. So that's when we fir- put together our first book. Uh, this this book now, I think, is much more substantial, much more ambitious but it's, uh, it was started on that first project that we made about 15 years ago. There's a, a very nice photograph of, of the two of you uh, next to a cannon and the ba- uh, back jacket there. Yes. <laughs> uh, I wish there had been something a bit more peaceful uh, than a cannon proposing uh, for him. But after all, it is a battlefield. Yeah. And uh, you know what General Sherman said about war and battle? You know, there it is. So you said uh, you're working on something else right now with uh, Chris Heisey? Yeah, I, I, uh, maybe it's a superstition, but I hate to talk too much uh, about a project that's that's currently going because uh, I tell my writing students don't don't talk away your project. But yeah, we're we're doing one now that involves uh, longer, more texts and more photographs, and it's basically nature stuff. And he's he as stunning as these photographs are. Civil War photographs 
I mean, I hope this this book gets finished and actually finds a publisher because it'll be unusual too. But those the the nature photographs just I uh, just knock you out. They're they're just terrific. I think. Yeah. So that's basic sort of what we're doing. Okay. Well, as I said, the the photographs in here are stunning, and I just I just love the the various angles he goes with and and various perspectives. Sometimes just showing a shadow of an object, and and it's really beautiful the way he does that. So I can only imagine what his nature pho uh, photographs look like. Yeah. Uh, uh, the one. Yes. Go ahead. Well, you know, I just want to to commend you uh, for what you have created here, and I I think. Um, it really, each story is its own, uh, you know, they're all related to the the first day of the battle, second day of the battle, third day of the battle. Uh, but each, it has its own story within it, and it really elicits a lot of empathy. And I think you did a, a great job of representing those different voices and bringing them to life uh, and really um, posing some important questions about how do we, you know, reconcile this experience and deal with this tragedy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, where can readers uh, find your book so they can buy it? Well, it is on Amazon. Uh, the book's only been out about a month, so it, it's not, uh, you know, it hasn't hit your local newsstand. Mm -hmm. And I was just down in Gettysburg a few days ago, and I did not find any copies there, even at the visitor center at the battlefield. It's published by uh, uh, Southern Illinois University Press. Uh, the easiest place that I know of right now is is Amazon. I know it's it's available there. Can be ordered directly from the press, and I hope before long uh, it'll be available locally uh, for those listeners who might be in uh, central Pennsylvania, northern Virginia, and so on. Well, great. I, I would definitely encourage uh, listeners to go out and, and get this book. I've been talking with Kent Graham, author of the book Gettysburg, The Living and the Dead. Kent, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure.